Marx, economist, blah, 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 boom and bust, bull and bear. Blah, 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 blah. Okay, fine. Your Paul Kinsey impression gets better and better. <laughs> and he was wearing an ascot when he said it. Of course he was. <laughs> Mad Men, a term coined in the late 1950s to describe the advertising executives of Madison Avenue. They coined it. Your Uncle Herman is on the line. He won't leave a message. Uncle Herman? Welcome to They Coined It. Hello, Roberta. The podcast about... Hi, Dan. <laughs> so I saw this movie in the theaters when it was out. I think it's 2019. Theaters. Contemporary film. Ford versus Ferrari. We've talked about that. It was Jet Set is the one where I didn't understand. Yes, California racing culture, right? No, it's still on every nine minutes on HBO, so I watch it every single time. This film tells like four different stories. The central element is a 24-hour of Le Mans race in 1966. To really understand what happened there, because it was a controversial event in real life, there's a business story around it, which is Ford getting into the racing industry for the first time. There's a personal story of the relationship between the race car driver, a guy named Ken Miles, played by Christian Bale, and Carol Shelby, who's played by Matt Damon. And that's phenomenal. And then there's a father-son story on top of that with Ken Miles' son. Boy, it's just a great, great film. It takes place in, as I said, like the 64 to 66 period. Just a great picture of the U.S. at the time. So conversely. Yeah. So I'm working on you know, as you like to say, 400 other podcasts. I'm in pre-launch stage for two other podcasts. And one of them I've, I've mentioned here will be called Let's Revisit, where me and our dear friend Albert, he did our logo, revisiting films mostly from the 80s and 90s, like from from our sort of youths-ish, mm -hmm. seeing if they're still, if they're any good, basically. So, so Albert and I watched and discussed The Lost Boys. Oh, which, yeah. Which, which was like, Everybody's favorite movie for at least among my like freaky friends. Now that was a uh, was that a Corey and Corey? That was the Corys. Very yeah. good. And Kiefer Sutherland in one of his kind of first <laughs> memorable, really memorable roles. It's Jason Patrick. It's Jamie Gertz. It was a lot of like Brat Pack adjacent people. It's a super gay movie if you are a gay man and you recognize that fact. If you're not, you don't. Meaning gay men like it or it's for gay men or both? It's Joel Schumacher, so I'm going to go both. It's just that it's okay. not It's not outward. It's undeclared. It's an undeclared <laughs> gay major. There's also like this wildly iconic moment of Tim Capello playing the sax on stage. He became this legendary sort of... I don't even know how to describe it, except there was <laughs> there was an SNL sketch around the same period where they had like bursting through the wall like the Kool-Aid guy, a sexy sax player in the mode of Tim Capello, who was played by John Hamm. Point is, it is a terrible movie. Like, I never thought it was a great movie. I understood what we loved about it. And like I said, it's a lot of people's favorite movies. And it was never my favorite movie, but I enjoyed it. I could watch it over and over. I hope I never encounter it again. I don't ever want to look at it again. Lost Boys, 85? 87, I think. 87. This is going to piss people off so bad because people still love this movie. We are now considering changing the name of our podcast to We're Going to Ruin Your Favorite Movie for You. It's less catchy, but... We're hoping not to. We're hoping some of these movies are still good that we decide to revisit. The Fog. <laughs> <laughs> Bada bing. Right. 
the fog written by cater gordon directed by phil abraham original air date was september 13th 2009 takes place during june 20th through about june 27th 1963 first week of summer 1963 yeah and uh medgar evers was murdered on june 12th Ah, okay, good reference. So this is the episode where Betty gives birth to the Draper's third child, names him Jean after her father who just passed. Mm. Peggy asks Don for a raise, and Duck is now at Gray and is <laughs> wooing Peggy and Pete to come uh, with him at Gray. Uh, Pete discovers that Admiral Television is popular in the black community. So those are some of the things that happen in this episode. Especially because of the title, you really remember one thing about this episode. There's a ton that happens that's not about the birth of this baby. Exactly. And yet, it's a significant portion of the episode. So why don't we dive into that? And Let's talk do about it. Betty's experience uh, kicking out number three. Betty, whose water does not break goes into labor and every show has to have like a little Lucy and Desi scene, you know, with like, <laughs> right. Oh, your keys are in your hand, you know? So he drives her to the hospital. I was born in the early seventies and I had friends whom their parents would brag that, Oh, I was the first father allowed in the delivery room at that hospital. This is a good decade before that would change. Right. So it was still you stay in the waiting room and, um, you know, get drunk with the other with the other expectant dads. Although I was a little surprised that it was even like that. It wasn't even like, all right, I'll go back to work. You know, (laughs) I mean, when he comes in half a day late, he gets shit from Roger about it. (laughs) That's so true. Roger, who's eating a sundae at his desk, is is giving him shit. But that's true. That's entirely true. Yeah. I mean, I'll tell you, I I was not looking forward to seeing this episode. It's a fascinating episode. And like I said, there was so much of that happened that I didn't remember because all I remembered was that this is the Betty Gives Birth episode. As viewers in real time, there was a certain amount of pressure to the fifth episode of the season because the fifth episode has been somewhat pivotal the last two. And I wouldn't say this is pivotal in that same kind of way. No, it doesn't follow that. This is almost a standalone in in some ways, right? But I didn't want to, it was painful. It was so painful to watch this. I am not a mother. I, I have not done this. But I, just as a woman, as a human, as a feminist, it was um, brutal. And it was really powerful. One of the moments that struck me was one of the scenes where her face is so red and you've never seen that. You've seen so many childbirth episodes of television and of films and there's lots of screaming and there's always the, you did this, I hate you moment. And people have told me that none of those are especially realistic. It's a little, little grittier. My mom had her first child in 1959 and she had four. So she had children from 1959 to 1970. And I don't believe she ever got this particular concoction that causes the fog. I I did hit the old Wikipedia. The twilight sleep is an amnesic condition characterized by insensitivity to pain without loss of consciousness induced by an injection of morphine and scopal... Oh, damn. You're on your own. Scopolamine. Scopolamine, probably. Like an epidural? Is that what we would call an epidural? Because women still get that, but it's not fogginess. Just to finish, especially to relieve the pain of childbirth. I don't think so. I think that what my mom, I didn't check with her this week, but I remember talking about it with her actually when this aired. And I recall her referring kind of the um, phrase saddle block, maybe a saddle block okay. where where this all, just that area. I mean, I think that paints a pretty clear picture, right? That's a great name, actually. That's all just sort of numb and you're conscious, but I don't think it's this. She definitely said she 
she didn't have this conco- this reaction. Yeah, in an epidural, modern day, you're fully conscious. You're you're totally yourself. I, they don't give you morphine anymore. This is not. This is this very specific thing that she experienced that women commonly experienced. And a lot of it was like, we went in, they gave me this thing, I went into La La Land and I woke up with a baby, which is more or less how it went with her, although I guess the there was some labor pains involved. It's more than labor pains. It's the state you're in, it's like she was being tortured because she's she's not really involved. Let me back up also to the experience of it from watching this, which was from the moment she gets there... You know, she's looking forward to it in a particular way, and that's because she's been through it before and she doesn't remember, but the pen doesn't work. She doesn't get her doctor. All the power that she has is is stripped from her. That's a great point. And there she is now in this experience, and she's not quite herself. She is really on these drugs, and she's half hallucinating, but she's not just regular. She's not, Again, I don't have the experience. I kind of wish I had somebody here... Who did? <laughs> well, I am past my childbearing years, but after watching this, I am never getting pregnant. But your hips, Dan, you you know, you <laughs> could, could make I it could happen. Squeeze out seven, or, seven <laughs> or eight. Yeah, that's true. No, I I don't think we were watching something akin to what we would be watching today. With, I mean, there's pain, but then there was mm. something else there about the drugs and about her state, and it really did seem like torture. It did, and it was almost like like an inebriant where your inhibitions are completely lowered. So when she screamed out, Don, you never know where he's going to be or he's never where he's supposed to be right? something like that. That was something. It was sort of like, all right, we're walking a line here between truth-telling and you know what else is going on and getting Betty's real thoughts about things as they as they pop into her head. She's just no filter. So it's all of that. I think it's all of that. There's the fogginess. There's the la-la land. There's the being present but not being present and a whole lot of truth-telling. So yeah, very gritty. I don't know what to make of the whole dream sequences, both the, the green screen stuff where she's walking outside. With the inchworm. The inchworm and seeing her dad. To me, those were just sort of, you know, the Medgar Evers obviously was a callback to the conversation with Miss Farrell. I didn't know to assign any real meaning to them or think to. It was sort of like, okay, she's these are things that are just below the surface for her for one reason or another. Obviously, her dad is 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 one of the big things that's just below the surface. They already had the scene with Sally in school where Ms. Farrell, there's no Ms., what am I, who am I kidding? Where Ms. Farrell suggests that Sally hasn't had a chance to grieve. And here's Betty saying, basically, yeah, we don't do that. We want to put this behind us. It echoes Don's extended self-pity. Right? But Medgar Evers has also, it's been in the news, the famous photograph or photographs. She's seen it. So that's part of it. I don't think Betty's thinking about Medgar Evers unless it came up at Sally's school, though. <laughs> just, just my opinion. Well, but this is her unconscious. I know. But that's what triggered it. Maybe. That's an image that she probably didn't think twice about when she saw it in real life. That, that's exactly my point. But it's coming through. In relation to Sally, it now has some, there's a connection to something personal to her, which otherwise there is not. Not that it matters. I don't think any of that's important, but I think it's it's interesting. I do think it's important. And I, I think it's more than that. I think she saw this violent, horrible image and she didn't give it any thought, but it stuck. And and sure, it got reinforced by by being brought up again, but it's... It's already there. Here's what I, I can make of all of this. You're going to love this. Mm. This this episode reminds me of two episodes of television. One was a 30-something and one, I'll give you a guess. Uh, does it start with a B? Does it end with a vampire slayer? <laughs> right. It narrows it down. Less so of that. There's an episode of Buffy, spoiler, Buffy's mother dies. And there's an incredible episode called The Body where she, where she, where her mother dies. And it's all, the camera is very jagged and angular and strange through that experience. There's an episode 
and I don't recall the name of it right now, but there is a childbirth episode of 30-something in the fourth season where Susanna has a baby. Now, this is the late 80s. These in particular, this this couple was like the hip, the evolved, the kind of somewhat the hippies of the group, if you will. And they had it all planned out. They had like the birthing room that looks like home. And they were doing Lamas and really kind of progressive. And I'm not going to let them do to me what has been done to women for years. We'll come back to the sort of the time theme throughout this episode. But that 30 something episode, it starts at the end. It starts with her screaming and about to give birth. Mm -hmm. And then it goes back one hour and they literally wind the clock back one hour and then they go back hours and days at a time. So what you see is the plans being made, the best laid plans being made, but you already have seen- That it's gone off the rails. Yeah. How that didn't work. They didn't get that room. It wasn't available. And <laughs> I, I didn't wasn't going to take drugs. And and I don't fucking want to hear Pachelbel's canon one more time. And the ice chips. One of the things that happens with women in labor today is in case you have to have a C-section, they don't let you eat. Oh, right. So you're sucking on ice chips. So you're losing all your strength to have this baby. Right. So it was another episode of television where, you know, you had one idea of how this was going to go, but the power gets taken away from her and taken away from her. And I swear this is going to tie in. The truth is, and these are all white women we're talking about, and we're not even talking about the mortality rate, the infant mortality rate for black women in this country. But the truth is, childbirth is a huge part of life and it's a beautiful thing and it brings you very close to death. And Jean in the hallucination was mopping up blood. Right. That's where I think this all really connects. And then I don't know specifically what the inchworm is, but those fantasy-like sequences, to your point, the green screen, right? The beautiful, yeah. the and that music that was so beautiful is just laid over the reality. Yeah, it's almost like the only thing I could sort of interpret from any of that is um, that was the deepest part of Betty being out to the extent she was completely unconscious. Yeah. So when you're at your most most unconscious, Betty sees herself the way Betty likes to see herself. And in Betty's world, Betty's this Snow White type character, you know, and all of nature kind of, you know, the birds <laughs> twittering around her. And by the way, no children, no children around. No, no, not at all. Betty is the, is the, is the complete center of attention and is the most beautiful in all the land. And, you know, a little bit of yeah. Betty's narcissism that that's probably her main trait. That to me was Betty at sort of the, I don't say the low point, but the the depth of of being out of it was then. And then other things like on the shoulders of that was being uh, slightly more conscious. So being aware of, you know, how, the Medgar Evers thing, real life kind mm -hmm. of seeping into your dreams the way they sometimes do, or your dad and the imagery of the blood and things like that. And yeah, between the Medgar Evers bloody, looks like um, her mom's hand was bloody behind Medgar's neck. Oh, that's right. Her mother, meeting her mother. And childbirth involves blood. So there's this whole sort of almost violence mm -hmm. theme to what's going on. It's just imagery of constant violence in different forms. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of the most I could make out of it. Again, I couldn't connect it too much back to like plot or what's going on or the state of the marriage or anything. There was very little of that for me. It was more like very deep-seated kind of imagery, personal, but also a little bit surface. There's also this Betty's fantasy of her life is that she has everything she wants and she's free, but there's this prison theme. We'll, we'll get to, we'll get <laughs> yeah. to the prison camp guy, right? 
I, I didn't see it so much as different stages of the consciousness. This would be one of those unknowable things anyway, so there's nothing to debate. The way that I saw it was she's got this fantasy, but even her fantasy can't keep her from the intrusion of these darker underlying truths about her life and about the very few choices that she sees herself having. And right. you've got her father saying, you're a house cat, you're very important, and you have little to do. Even in seeing her father, he didn't really say that, she did. Right. It's in her it's in her subconscious. So that's, right. that's tough stuff. It is. it is. Plus, plus the way the staff treated her to your, to your point about losing all the power. Right. You know, breathe and think about the hair salon, it's, which I do all whenever I'm in a tough spot. I will just think about the hair salon. I mean, you you mock, but you know that my George is my best friend and my hairstylist and that <laughs> and his chair is my happy place. So, well, yeah, well, it's 2021. If, if, if someone in the medical profession told you that you should punch them kick him in the nose reach right up and punch them <laughs> exactly. in the nose right. but that nurse has um been doing that for a very long time <laughs> she's not not that woman's first rodeo did we ever even see the doctor or was it only no. ever no she was very aunt lydia for the uh fans of the handmaid's tale she was very very aunt lydia which is kind of a stereotypical Brunhilde type. The fat women. Yeah. <laughs> right. Always get uh, cast that way. Right. Not what you'd call patient centric care. <laughs> no, so. no. It's all about get that baby out of you and don't. Staff centric care. <laughs> don't you worry that pretty little head of yours with, yeah. you know, thoughts of wanting your own doctor. Right. You interrupted his anniversary dinner, by the way. <laughs> and like I said, I don't know how much to, to to make of all that. I think it's just, it was almost just an exploration of, to your point, you know, kind of the- The brutalization. Low level inhumanity yes. with, with something going on like that. It was equally further indictment of the medical industry that we see on the show. Your favorite on Mad Men. <laughs> It's usually personified by the doctor him, himself, but here it was more institutional, a little more you know, enterprise-wide, we would say now. We tend to think that things get more dehumanizing and, and less humane and more mechanical and automated now, which they do. But my wife gave birth, you know, 17 years ago last month. And so the industry has changed to where it's, it is more patient-centered and it is more humane and it is more care-based for the mother. There's more resources all across the board, even as you're, you know, bounced out of there in two days instead of like four days or whatever, or a week or whatever it is. Oh, they used to keep him for a week. That was wild seeing Betty still there, right? Yeah. So that's, you know, more insurance industry stuff. But the resources are there for mothers in a way that they weren't. And and the whole experience, I think, is more mommy-centric as it, as it ought to be, frankly, without sacrificing the care of the children. It's just interesting how these things kind of shift and move and, and go back and forth, but did not seem like a pleasant experience to give birth in the early 60s. No. But like I said, my, my mother says they there were choices. But when I did read about this twilight sleep, women's rights advocates advocated for it at that time, or uh, maybe not quite at that time, maybe a bit before. Advocated for what? For that little cocktail? For that cocktail. Like, make this better. Make it stop, right? Oh, I see. It was just this limited view of what was better. But it goes back and forth, right? Like, then it swings the other way, natural, I'm not going to do that. And I think you're also at the mercy of the technology, of of medical technology, of like, well, we can, we can knock you out, or we can, no, I want to experience it. Well, then you're going to be in some pain. And nowadays, like I said, I think this epidural, the modern day version of it is sort of like you're sitting here the way we're sitting here, but you're 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 giving birth and you don't really feel it. I think it's just the natural improvement of of the technology that's allowed women to be more conscious, which I think is the primary concern, and for it to be less painful, which is 
probably, you know, right, a close second concern. There's still a long way to go. I think you're right. I think there oh, are yeah, many examples of better of better care and better options. There's still plenty wrong with it. Hysterectomies are still the, what is it, the most common procedure and for women and doctors prescribe hysterectomies like candy. There's just a lot of indiscriminate procedures and it's done a lot of times, I think, during a C-section. So that's, that's why I bring it up. You know, I don't have statistics in front of me, but C-sections are still encouraged right. as though- that's better because it's easier for the doctor so he can golf the day oh, yeah. he wants to golf. You said some of it is based on technology and I would yeah. say and patriarchy. And again, we're still talking about white women. I was going to say, yeah, these are for the whiter you are, the more options you have. But at the same time, it's easy to say kind of so the doctor can play golf, sure. But it's also like it's the entire staffing and scheduling of the hospital around what they're doing. The more prep time there is and the more notice there is, the better care you can get to some degree. So it's just a matter of of balancing that. I'm just saying they're both factors. That doesn't mean that for every woman, not having a section is the thing or having a section is the thing. Sometimes medical necessity comes along. Listen, and I'm speaking as the father, as I used to say, you know, um, we're having kids, but you're having the baby. <laughs> right. We'll be parents. You're pregnant. <laughs> like there's no mistaking. Right. You're not really both going through it. <laughs> sort of you have to caution your language a little bit. If I'd said we're pregnant when my wife was pregnant with twins eight months in, I would have gotten a kick in the nuts. So and rightly so. Amazing that people <laughs> still say that. Like Oof, uh, well, but isn't that sort of like a progressive thing? Wasn't that something like yeah. oh the dad, you know, just as involved it's like, honey, we're we're we're, we're in no way both pregnant. <laughs> a stupid thing to say. <laughs> let's go out to the waiting room. Oh, what's going on out there? Um, Did you recognize the nurse? That nurse. Oh, yeah. Well, you recognize the voice right. of that nurse. That's Lisa Simpson. Now, what's your name again? Yardley Smith. Yardley Smith, right. But yes, Yardley Smith plays Lisa Simpson's voice. And it's just that that's all you hear. <laughs> And she's been in a handful of movies over yeah. the years. She's, you know, worked on screen. I, I remember the first time I knew the face. It all, I mean, it was all at once. I definitely knew her, but it was, that's fun. That's fun for us. It really <laughs> is. So, and you're sort of like, why, what is she doing here exactly? Like, this, it's not a cameo, but it definitely takes you out of the scene a little bit. It's fun. Well, the good news is time has stopped. I'd like to have a go watch one day, but I can't, you know? You don't want to have anything on you like that. They attack you? I knew it was just a matter of time before you start with the questions. Bet you have a nightmare where you end up in Sing Sing, right? Everybody does. I do. Dennis Hobart. Dennis Hobart. You know, I didn't notice his name was Hobart until Lisa Simpson comes back in and says, Mr. Hobart. And then I kind yeah. of went, Jim Hobart? Yeah, I don't think he works in a can, this guy. Right, he doesn't. But that didn't feel like a coincidence either. Yeah, I couldn't put, I don't know what to think of that. Sometimes it's just... Someone forgets or something. I don't know. It wasn't prominent enough for it to mean anything. You know what I mean? If it were going to mean something, it would be a little more prominent, I think. Oh, I don't know. I think there's Easter eggs all over, and I don't know where they all are. Perhaps. Perhaps. Yeah, I'm calling no Easter egg on this. Okay. I'm calling Easter egg. Coiners, weigh in on why you might think. I don't think I've seen this episode more than once or twice before this. But this, you know, I, I didn't know what to make. I, they, we spend a lot of time with these two for this episode, right? Two or three full, like, scenes. And... I always felt like it's a little on the nose, but 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 maybe I'm just missing whatever the whatever the other kind of goodies are there to be to be snatched because I'm gonna be a better man and you know Don's got this thing you know it's like it it, it it's sort of like it's really do we we need someone to tell Don that he's gonna be a better man so Don can try and be a better man and we're gonna think this is a new day for Don like that just seemed way on the nose for me. My takeaway was he looks at Don and he says. 
look me in the eye, Don, and, and listen to me as I promise to be a better man. He's already been, you know, lusting after a 15-year-old candy striper, right? This guy right. is, is this guy is a dog. And the look in Don's eyes was so it was such a wince. It was so painful. <laughs> and I didn't get at all that Don is making that promise. So it was much more to me reminiscent of what he said to Shelly, the stewardess in Out of Town. I'm engaged. On the other hand, you might be my last chance. I've been married a long time. Oh, that's interesting to link it with that. It was the pain of, yeah, that's never going to happen. Not for you, not for me. There's this teacher on my mind, perhaps. Yeah. We don't we don't turn the corners we think we're turning. Kind that's of right. Thing. Yeah, you're not going to get scared straight by the birth of a baby. That's just not how it works. And Don knows yeah. that really well now. Right. No, that's a good point. That's a good point. The rest of it, I don't understand. That I understood. Right, all the talk about the prisoners and the 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 power over one another. I mean, it's it's weird. It was just it seemed to not go anywhere. And I gave, I always think I'm missing something with it. But then but then what I find interesting is that last glimpse that we get of of him, Dennis, where he pretends not to know Don, which might be in a way kind of the button on the way that you're saying it, right? So they don't the the moments passed. Dennis is not. Don's buddy and Dennis is not in this new headspace at all. He's in the old headspace where they don't know each other. Dennis is not liquored up this time. Right. 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 They were drinking together. Yeah. So it could be like, you know, that's all for naught kind of thing. In which case, I didn't love that whole scene just because I I kept wanting it to go somewhere and maybe mean more than it was going to mean. But it just seemed like a time filler at the end. Because it seems like you could do a lot. We don't get a lot of interaction with the main thing that Ossining is known for, which is its prison. <laughs> you know, we, That's right. It's not That's really right. a character in the show. You know, Matthew Weiner chose Ossining because it had a prison. From the beginning, decades earlier, when he put that tag on another storyline, right? It mm-hmm. was Ossining 1960. He chose this town that was on the train line that had a prison. Ossining is not actually, it's more blue collar than, than how... Don and Betty seem to live. Correct. It's not like Chappaqua or something. Right. And he, and he wanted the prison. And, and it actually makes sense that a prison town would be more blue collar. Again, I, I also am not in love with this sequence. It doesn't quite land for me. There's the prison metaphor. And like I said, I, I do think there's some imprisonment for both of them yeah. in this episode and throughout okay. their right. marriage, right? <laughs> right. And there's a little of like the imposter that Don is, both literally and figuratively, he could be this guy just as easily. The fact that he's the white collar fancy man, but he, at the end in that exchange, they are the same and Don knows it. Right. That's but it true. doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't hit, it doesn't land. It doesn't hit no. me. It doesn't give me the feel. That moment gave me the feels for sure. Not good feels, but you know, it hit me. But the rest of it, it didn't land. I'm with you. If I'm going to see Don talk to a stranger, I just expect more. Yeah. He's really good you know, at it. He's great at it. <laughs> Daddy? Who are you? It's me. I don't know you. It's me, Elizabeth. You do know me. She's in this, again, this sort of torture chamber. And the next thing we know, she's got her eyes open and she's holding a baby. And there's 
Don sitting there, you do get the impression that literally that's how she wakes up, which is insane that the first time she meets her kid, Don's already met her kid, Jean. That was an interesting little power play. Yeah, that has to be mentioned here. <laughs> yeah. Her her commitment that this was going to be a girl is pretty fierce. Like, it really does seem like they never, like, she would not have a conversation called, what if it's a boy? She wouldn't. So the fact that it was a boy was quite a surprise. And the fact that she right away knew what to name that baby and Don was like, you're going to name him the worst person in, in my life in recent memory. Yeah. And in case there's any confusion. Just name him Archie. Right. I mean, right. right. <laughs> Pretty much. Name him Wit. Right. Um, I mean, I had this thought, would he want to name him Adam? You know, probably not, but it, I had the thought. The point is he wasn't being named anything but Gene. I mean, that's that's right. kind of what this was. And, you know, if you're a watcher of Mad Men this, this long, uh, all this talk about it being a girl, you knew it was going to be a boy. <laughs> there was just, just absolutely no way you were, that was going to go to plan. But, yeah, the power move. I mean, th- there's no reaction here. So I, I assume – I can't remember if there's a reaction going forward, not to be a spoiler. But I think I think he does react – it comes up again. I don't recall that. You know me. I'm like I'm like Dory. I don't I don't remember what's coming. But I can't remember. But the point is, it's 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 sort of a mini cliffhanger. The fact that she's clearly gone and done this with Don makes clear that this isn't going to fly with him, and then we see her handing over the the birth certificate with the name on it. I mean, I don't see it as a cliffhanger. Well, it, meaning it's out there. It's out there, and it's un and it's unresolved is what I mean. I don't know. I think she resolved. It's unresolved it. between Betty and Don. Sure. No, it was a power move. It was, it was, she put her foot down (laughs) and she absolutely has like a little bit of a wry smile when she signs. Oh yeah. Fuck him. Yeah. Like I said, there was such a loss of power for her in this experience, but now there's also, she's back in this marriage and underneath it all, however she pretends everything is, it's, you never know where Don, Don never is where he's supposed to be. So who's she getting back at here? But she does. Yeah. And the baby was the whole basis upon which the reconciliation took place. She was ready to leave Don entirely with the kids. So it's, it's one of those things where it's like, oh, geez, now I have my baby, my new baby. Now what? Now I got to, <laughs> I'm still living with the guy that I'm pretty sure was cheating on me and all the rest. So, you know. Life reverts back to the mean at this point. She's also naming him after the man who thinks so little of her based on her own subconscious of what her father mm. said to her. And we actually know that that's true, the way he talked about her to, to Sally. It's like a, a self-fulfilling prophecy of, you know, she's lived her whole life trying to get daddy's approval, and now she's putting it back in her own space. Yeah. yeah. Like, if, if she had any sense, she'd maybe name him <laughs> something else, but- she she's Betty. Anyway. The final scene of the episode is is a Betty moment that I wanted to point to. They're home finally. Oh, just just also uh in that scene with Don and Betty and the baby in the hospital for the first time. She, her first thing is, Oh, I look a mess. I don't remember exactly how she yeah, said it, no, but I it's like I actually need to put my face on. Right. Are you fucking kidding me? Like her priorities are special and very Betty. Midge Maisel. Yeah. I, I thought the same thing. <laughs> Um, she hears the baby crying. She gets up in the middle of the night. She walks down the hall and she stops. And there's a lot of this throughout the episode, but this was to me the most prominent. The lighting. Phil Abraham was the director, but he 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 was a director of photography before he started directing mm-hmm. actual episodes. The way the shadows and light and windows and all of this plays, there are vertical prison stripes on Betty. Go look. It is Yeah, I didn't notice. That's really 
That's that's really cool. It's really powerful. So she pauses and she's like, she's like, she's not going to go. Like she's standing there in the hall in these prison stripes and she doesn't want to go. That fantasy music starts back up and that gets her out of this prison that she's in and she goes toward the fantasy, you know, and the baby's crying the whole time. And you know who isn't crying? Betty over the loss of her father. Right. It's like the baby's doing the crying for her. So I thought that last moment was really something. I'm sure it'll all work out great. (laughs) (laughs) Everything's on the up and up. Okay. So let's take a break. We'll come back. We got office stuff. So much else going on. A lot of, lot of birth and stuff, but a lot of office stuff when we return. Hey, want to let you know what's been happening on our Patreon page. If you don't know what Patreon is, it is a website designed so that fans of different things to be fans of have a way to support the thing they're a fan of, like say your favorite podcast or even one of your top 10 favorite podcasts. Dan and I had a lot of fun trying to figure out ways that we could thank our patrons. So we've actually started doing an extra episode to accompany the weekly episode. Basically, once we've listened to the final episode that we're going to drop for the week, we get back together and we're like, well, here's a couple other things we thought of. And we named that extra little podcast eminently chewable, which is the thing Dan always says that the show is and the show is. And you can also get our Thursday episodes on Mondays. So head on over. There's some other fun opportunities. And yes, the merch is coming. Keep an eye on our social. Keep an eye on our Instagram and Twitter at TCI Mad Men Pod. But yeah, we've been cooking up a bunch of stuff. Check us out. Thank you for supporting us. And thank you for listening. If you do not want to head over to Patreon, that's fine. Keep listening. We will be here. Let's get back to it. I love the the duck that said gray now, Duck Phillips. Duck in a turtleneck. A duck in a turtleneck. <laughs> well, I, there's a few there's a few little chestnuts I just love. Well, first he calls Pete, and Pete thinks it's his uncle Herman. Oh, that was so funny. <laughs> Which is funny. It's sort of like doesn't need to be there. They just put that in to be funny because Duck can't call up his duck. But basically, Duck is now wooing Pete and Peggy to to join him at Gray, and obviously he's trying back on the wagon he's having coffee at lunch he's not having a drink he's trying to trying to get them to to go over and you know to know the backstory you you might know he thinks pete's the easy one because he was always the one playing mentor daddy figure to pete right he doesn't know that pete walked away from duck's office and went to don and said here's what's going on correct that's a big missing in his knowledge know that he would not know that but that's a huge like blind spots we we know this right i hadn't considered what you just said which is that in duck's mind pete was his buddy pete was his guy he was going to promote pete pete was disappointed and heartbroken that duck left perhaps right right. (laughs) what he may not know is pete then heard the news the words he's been always waiting to hear you're the head of accounts and then it's not what he thought but duck knows none of this that's right he just thinks he has a better relationship with pete than he does with peggy and he probably does but that doesn't mean he knows what makes pete tick however peggy's in a much more emotionally fraught space to be wooed than pete is Again, he wouldn't know this. He's identified her as 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 low-hanging fruit, perhaps, and invites them both to lunch. And also thinks that the two of them are a team, which right. they are not. <laughs> but he thinks they could be, and that's not wrong to think. What he does think is that they were in cahoots, basically, about getting her oh, right. promoted yeah. once Freddie was fired. Yeah, that's true. He thought they were already kind of linked. He made up a lot of shit. <laughs> he, yeah, he filled in a lot of blanks <laughs> for himself. He really did. But he's wrong, number one. Listen, I liked Pete's reaction to the whole thing. 
buy me lunch of my own. I'm not part of this. This is no conspiracy thing that I'm a part of. You're going to woo me. Woo me. He's already right. just had to share his promotion. <laughs> exactly. Now I have to share being being seduced. Fuck you. It, no, Duck got it Duck wrong. Duck did not do the math on this because the, the odds of being of it going badly were much greater than he ever thought. That's Duck's bloated sense of, of I know what's- That's his specialty. It is his specialty. Is thinking he yeah. knows, thinking he can read the room. <laughs> but what he gets is Peggy, you know, left at, at the lunch to listen to the pitch which she was, again, in a, in a state of mind to be receptive to. And so now we've got this kind of intrigue of will she or won't she? Is she interested? Is she not? And she goes, you know, she and Pete talk about it back at the office. And I love this little conversation. It's, again, a great Mad Men conversation. Yeah. Where he, Pete's dying to know, did you tell anyone about Duck's offer? And she doesn't say yes or no. She's very shrewd about this. She is very shrewd. And I don't think it's something that she planned out or thought ahead about. If I'm asked, I won't say. I think she knew instinctively, do not say yes, do not say no. And she was perfect. I think her instincts are are twofold here. I don't answer this question to anybody. And I don't trust Pete Campbell with shit. (laughs) (laughs) And I think both both of those, both equally true and serving her well. And Pete has the great. The great line, your decisions affect me. What did you think of that? What what was that? It has double meaning. It's it's um Oh, it's, I didn't even I just gave, heard it now. To gave our baby away. Right. I just heard it now. Because I think it hits her very hard when she hears that. I think yes. that's exactly what her interpretation is silently. I didn't really understand it from the business perspective. I mean, sure, he's she's on some of his brands, but I didn't understand I didn't get that. And then the other the other meaning is if if you just blabbed and told everyone that we were wooed by this by Duck and the, the whole history of the thing, that's going to affect him too, right? So your decisions and w- whether you go or don't go affects me. Yeah. But obviously the double meaning was was the point. What Pete's got going on, now he's left with, you know, these dogs that he thinks are, you know, worthless clients that he's he's has to manage one of which is admirable admiral tv which is a real brand and he discovers that that they're big in inner cities which and it's just so fascinating today Mm -hmm. you wouldn't have to make the leap from inner city to african-american which isn't uh, which is, is is a sensible leap to make so it's not like out of the blue that he's conjuring this but you wouldn't even have to do that today they would have a much more a much tighter hold on. In other words, we know we're we're selling to African Americans, therefore these cities are our big markets. Right. As opposed to, hmm, these markets, you know, Detroit and and St. Louis and and uh, Newark and all this uh, must be blacks buying them, which is true, but it would be the reverse today. Yeah. He 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 makes this observation and thinks that well, this is the this is the key to sales for them. So let's move some of their money into black publications, blah, blah, blah. Pete Campbell's the guy who figured it out. He's once again ahead of the curve. He 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 really is. He is shrewd as fuck. He's completely data-driven. He is data-driven. He's not judging it. Now, on one hand, the thing to do would really, in real life, the thing to do would be, all right, I have this interesting idea, a novel idea to present to my clients. But how are my clients going to receive this? Does this align with how they see their brand. So it might just be some happenstance or whatever the case may be that blacks in inner cities are buying their their equipment, their televisions. But if they don't see themselves as that or they're not willing to go in that direction, it could be the best idea in the world. It's going to fall flat. And that's exactly what happens. And a, and a really astute account guy would have thought, would, would have contemplated that. And Pete did not contemplate. He was 100% 
non-judgmental, data-driven recommendation. And also didn't read the room. That's right. And didn't read the room. Didn't know his client. You're absolutely right. It was indifferent. It he wasn't a matter of uh, some kind of progressive righteousness. It was, yeah, it was, no. it was, it was like, here's the facts. Uh, almost colorblindness, if you will. I mean, he absolute did, colorblindness. in terms of there's a profit motive, not that he didn't see race, but he didn't think anybody should care if it's going to make the money. Aren't we the all here to make money? The solution. Now I'll tie this in with, you know, earlier in the episode, Kinsey gives this whole Marx bullshit, capitalism and boom and bust. People forget that Karl Marx was the greatest economist who ever lived and whatever you think of his solution, the problem he posed was about the catastrophic up and down of the marketplace. Tell the folks at Admiral that Karl Marx says everything's okay. Boom and bust, bull and bear. I need a TV, I have a TV. It's not like Paul had anything really to add to it. All he did was really reference Marx. He name-checked Marx in the, in the script. But the fact that um, Kinsey's kind of planted this seed about capitalism and sort of like the limits, let's say, the limits of capitalism, which was not a thing that Americans like to talk about, in the early 60s. He's planted the seed earlier in this in the in the episode. Now towards the end of the episode, Pete is confronted with the limits of capitalism. Why wouldn't my client want to sell more television sets? Why wouldn't they? I just I just give them a way to sell more TVs and improve their revenue and he they don't want to hear it. I don't get it. And that's cuz Pete can't read the room and all the other things we just said. He doesn't understand the power of racism is more powerful than the power of capitalism. The power of racism, the power of how you see yourself and the, the image that you have of you and your brand in this case. I'm going to have to pretend I had you killed. Sales are flat. I had to do something. I don't know if anyone's ever told you that half the time this business comes down to, I don't like that guy. Roger's Roger, and he's the consummate account guy who can read the room and can navigate the personal elements of all this, but would never have come up with that data-driven solution that Pete did. And then they end up as an agency saying, but let's look, let's look at this. Let's see what clients would go for this because this is a great idea. In a different context, we can use this, but not with these guys. But not with these guys. I love how it comes full circle where Kinsey plants the seed about Marxism and the limits of capitalism. And then Pete immediately runs headlong into the limits of capitalism, which is a non-obvious, you know, I'll call that an Easter egg for, for, for that. You've also got the scene on the elevator with Hollis. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And that's why I say Medgar Evers is this backdrop to so much of this episode. Yeah. And even though he doesn't say it in words, Hollis says, like, we have other shit on our minds right now. So you've got Pete basically bullying, I mean, stops the, L, you know, <laughs> bullying Hollis into having this conversation, this sort of Don Draper in a bar with a busboy kind of conversation. This is a bookend to that. This is the I am not as good as Don Draper is at this moment of the of the episode. We know each other, Hollis, however he says it. And he's like, yeah. Mr. Campbell. Listen, Pete's completely tone deaf. He's unable to really, you know, he throws in the line at the end about baseball and I don't believe you. It's a nice, it's it's almost like saying I'm not completely the devil. Pete's got a tremendous amount of privilege behind what he's doing to engage Hollis this way, act more familiar and friendly than they are in reality. And Hollis knows this and he's playing the role and he's being polite. And he's holding his ground. I, I don't want to talk about it. He never doesn't say, I don't want to talk about this. But he, but he eggs Hollis on about, about TVs and this inane stuff until Hollis has to say, look, I'm just, I'm not that focused on what kind of TV I watch. I guess I have an RCA. Who cares? There's bigger things. People are dying, you know? That's why I say it's it's much more of a bookend to Don because Don would have had Don Hollis talking endlessly about TVs because Don's so Don's able to relate it to a person in a way that Pete just does not have that lobe of his brain to be able to do. Don got Hollis to put up a fake out of order sign. 
<laughs> right. Well, the, the the money always helps. Sure. But I go back to the like you said, the 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 bus boy in the yeah. first scene of the pilot is Don chatting up a black guy to ask him about his client that he uses and how's that go and what's going on and it's endless. Don, Don would have gotten this guy, this rather surly looking bus boy, <laughs> to talk for uh, for an hour about about cigarettes. Two differences there. Don was chatting up a stranger. Number one, but number two. Pete was specifically talking to Hollis because he's black. That's right. May, will you please speak for your people That's so that right. I can right. get richer? <laughs> so true. And Hollis, Hollis was not having it. And that's, that's the privilege that I, Pete in this case, but I think underlies a whole lot of misunderstanding about what is meant by the term white privilege. You don't even know, you don't even realize the underlying assumptions of what you're saying that's so off base. And uh, it's a great example of that. It, it wasn't even as prominent a discussion 10, 11 years ago when it aired than, than, than it is today, right. but it was still out there for sure. And you just see how ham-fisted Pete is in these situations. He, he just, he, he, Pete is not a people person. He is not that kind of guy that's going to chat you up out of nowhere. You'd think he and Duck would get along better. <laughs> two, yeah, for two, real. Two arrogant men who cannot read the room, except Pete's instincts for business seem to be better, or at least in, in advertising and in forward thinking and all that. Again, he was able to analyze a set of facts completely objectively and non-judgmentally. But being great at business calls for both. You, you, you know, the person who sits back and crunches the numbers is not the guy who's the face of the firm to the clients, which is what a, an account person is. Pete's, you know, he's he's great at his job, but he's not great at his job. He's able to come up with solutions, but not ones that can actually get implemented. But to me, this is like that more of those brushstrokes, right? This is more Pete Campbell brushstrokes because we'll hear more about the Negro market. We'll hear more about you know, Pete's ability to, to see things ahead of other people. That's a gift. Pete needs to develop his, his rapport with, with others and, and to, to understand his clients better. He's on his way with all this stuff, but it's fascinating. It, like, like many great things, it starts out with a failure. So the other end of the duck lunch is the- uh, The duck's tail, if you will. The duck's tail <laughs> is Peggy. You know, he plants a seed in her mind about her worth and her value. And that seed, he germinates that seed, if you will. No spoilers. <laughs> because, you know, going back to that scene in, in the bar when she eats the guy's hamburger and she says, my boss is a jerk. And you're kind of like, whoa, where did, whoa. But to learn that that's there informed this scene. You know, this last scene between, between Peggy and Don was less shocking for me, having sort of retained that this time. Yeah, so she's got this in her mind that she's worth more than she's getting paid. She's getting unhappy at work. She loves what she does, but she's recognizing her own little prison. She's recognizing the limitations of this job in this location. She's never been right. wooed before. Huge, huge factor. She, you know, it, it definitely woke up, whether she's been thinking of leaving or not, suddenly... It's like looking up. It's like there's a whole big world out there. Yeah. There's a whole big world out there. And wh where is my loyalty to Don taking me? How, how's that going? You know, she gets up the courage to go into Don's office the day, you know, right when he gets back from from the baby and asks for a raise. And she does it very professionally and she does it very smartly. And Don, you know, is not in a frame of mind. I don't think he would be otherwise anyway, but 
to, to really entertain it. He, he brushes her off pretty sufficiently. The other thing that's been happening in this episode is Lane Price coming down on their budgets. Don's had this context of uh, controlling expenses and all that for sure. So yeah, exactly. Legitimately. And he's really fighting against it. And he, he makes this great pitch to Lane about leave the creative alone. Basically, you, you don't understand what this will do to us. He could have articulated that. I mean, he did say it to Peggy and he is tired. Uh, yeah, I'm fighting for paper clips, right? He could have given her more assurance that he'd take care of her or that there's another time for this discussion when it would be better, but no. No, he definitely said, no, that door is closed. I mean, he definitely gave the impression that that door is closed. He brushed her off. Yeah. You know, you begin to see this reaction from from Peggy about, you know, what if this is my time? Which is what Duck told her, right? This is your time. What do you want me to say? <laughs> I don't think I could have been any clearer. You see what's been going on here the last six months? What if this is my time? And there's tons of time references. I mean, it's so much whole fun, thing right? is time. Right? Ken's watch. Where? What time is it? What time is it? Which I don't even know what that means. But what time isn't it? You know, it's a big deal about. It. I guess he got that from his client, which was funny. Betty's not sure when her dad died. When Miss Farrell asks her how long it's been, she was unsure. And I don't know if anybody's lived through a pandemic can know what it's like to lose track of time. <sighs> <laughs> Yeah, just lots of reference. And, and so this is another one. And another, Don even says it isn't a good time. This isn't a good time. And Peggy's like, what if this is my time? And time, time, time. Betty announces that she's in labor. It's time to go. So it's just time right. is this little theme all the way through. It right? keeps hitting. So you could see Peggy's like a little bit awakened now to the outside world and what's going to happen. And she's at least entertained in the, I don't think she's committed to leave, but she's entertained this idea of of other things and other other places to go. And that's... Really interesting. And of course, you know, we know how the season ends for those of us who've seen it. Right. So there's a lot that 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 will um, be shaken up with that. But there's also in the same scene, she says to Don, I look at you and I think I want what he has. And Don is surprised by that because, again, he doesn't recognize the, the package, the right. privileged package that he appears to to that he radiates. She says, you have everything and so much of it. And Don, he says, I suppose that's probably true, but he also remembers in that moment that he just had his third child. And suddenly he and Peggy are in the presence of that together they know that Peggy gave away a baby. I mean, it's very rare that mm. we remember that Don was there. That's right. And these are two people who are very good at looking forward and not backwards, but it was palpable mm. in that moment. You have what I want and so much of it. Child number three, you have the career that I want. And you won't give me a raise. Like, what do I get? Yeah, it was just really yeah. powerful. And it's and it's more, I think, also you know your your fate being in the hands of others, sort of like you were saying with Betty in the hospital. She has to go hat in hand to to get a, which you know we all do from time to time. Yeah, people people have to ask for raises. That's a thing. <laughs> exactly. That's that's not unique to to Peggy at all. But I think the fact that they all seem to be crammed into this episode of what do you want? How are you going to get it? What are your limitations? What 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 are your constraints in your current situation? A lot of stuff just buzzing around, and it's it's wild. It's wacky wild. It's stuff. really a fatter episode than than I remembered. I mean, because I can remember Peggy saying, "What is what if this is my time?" was a memorable important moment. Right. But you wouldn't have linked it to this episode. I right? could not have told you 
for what sure. episode it came from, for sure. Okay, so from this episode, we're going to talk about quotes when we come back and wrap her up. So I didn't love the conversation with Dennis Hobart in the waiting room, but I love, and this is a real thing. He talks about the prison baseball team playing the Yankees in 1929. And that was a common thing back then. It was like a morale thing. It was obviously way before the culture we have now, but the Yankees and sometimes the Giants would come and play the baseball team at Ossining State Prison. Who knew? But I just I just love Don's reaction to the Yankees. Everyone in stripes, which is just such a great, you know, Don the writer, you know, it's a funny line and I funny. laugh at it every time. It's really good. And then it, it does tie back to the, you know, the sort of darker prison theme and stripes. And also baseball is the great unifier. It brings us all together because there you go. look at Pete and Hollis, right? Baseball <laughs> right. as a, as a vehicle for, for mm-hmm. being the great unifier. Sure. We didn't talk much about Miss Farrell, but she does drunk dial Don Draper. Sure, sure does. And she says, I don't know why I'm calling. I'm embarrassing myself. Yeah. She doesn't know why she's... Seeds. Yeah. I mean, she doesn't know why she's calling, but my God, we do. <laughs> and what if Betty had picked up? You know, like... I mean, <laughs> it was ridiculous. It was such a Nonsense. strange... But I just want, you know, having been an embarrassing myself kind of woman at different points in my life, I don't especially want to be relating to Miss Farrell, but in that pathetic, embarrassing, <laughs> <laughs> dumb ass moment. Yeah. It was a moment. <laughs> sure was. You know what? Mm. You know what's next week? Oh, what is next week? Oh my God. Here's a here's Oh a, yeah. Here's a hint. Watch your fingers, watch your toes, everybody. Splatter gif. <laughs> so great. And it's totally out of nowhere. Again, it just kind of hits you. You don't there's no preparation for this episode, which is so wonderful. Well, there really was there really was a fan buzz around what episode five would be. We had really decided that episode five was a thing on mm-hmm. this episode on on this series, and we made that up. Right, and exactly. Those this next not, one is yeah. what we were waiting for. Really, like this next one is like whole. This the next one's a holy shit episode, right? Which blows the theory out of the water. Which blows basically. the theory out of the water, but it all blows all of us out of the water. So, guy walks into an advertising agency is. Uh, I'm gonna have to watch this one a few times, I think, before the next time we meet. It's it's a gem. So, all right, Roberta. All well, right. listen, Dan. That's the fog. Thank you, everybody. We will see you next time. See you soon. Hey, Coiners, we're so glad you're enjoying the show. One of the best ways to support us is to give us rave reviews on Apple Podcasts and to share us on social media. A great way to literally support us is at our Patreon, where we've got some extra content. Patreon.com slash theycoinditpod. If you're able, we love you either way. And we love your comments and your questions. Bring them on. Questions at theycoinditpod.com or find us on Instagram, Twitter, at TCI Mad Men Pod. We've got a lot more Mad Men to get to, and we can't wait. See you next episode.